1: Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. This is your host, Dr. Raj Balkaram. I have the pleasure uh, today of speaking with Jennifer B. Saunders on her very fascinating book, Imagining Religious Communities. Uh, Jennifer, how are you? Welcome to the program.
2: I'm great. Thank you for having me.
1: So what's your book about?
2: Um, Yeah, in a nutshell, I would say it's about a transnational Hindu family and their social networks and the ways that they tell stories to help create and maintain connections across international borders.
1: So let's talk about this idea of, uh, uh, for those of you who've seen the the link online, you'll see the subtitle is transnational Hindus and their narrative performances. So um, what's a transnational Hindu?
2: (laughs) So um, when I, I've done a lot of work with religion and immigration, and um you know I've struggled with terms like um immigrant, diaspora transnational and i've I've decided to use the term transnational um when speaking about this group of um, this particular community because the This you know kind of post nineteen sixty five american hindu Indian immigrant community is much more defined by the ties that they've maintained across national borders rather than their dispersal um, you know they've they've because of the level of education and their middle-class status from the beginning, they were always able to you know, kind of go back and forth um, between, and particularly the, the community that I've studied is settled in the United States, they've always been able to go back and forth between the United States and India, instead of you know, earlier generations who were perhaps more cut off from uh, family and community back home. So um, I prefer to talk about them as transnational because in essence, they're really living their lives across borders rather than, you know, kind of in their own um, separate countries.
1: No, I I like the concept both in terms of thinking about um, what we may otherwise call diaspora or Hinduism in diaspora. I also like the term because it has a lot of implications that, um, are especially rich in, in our time, in our in our epoch, where we can. Uh, so much of what we do isn't necessarily tied to the soil we're on anymore. For example, I'm in Toronto right now, and you're in Connecticut, and we are in intimate conversation about your book and and um, uh, this sort of translocal phenomenon of our age is probably one piece of the the transnational um, uh, performance of Hinduism that you're that you're talking about. Um, how would uh, how would diaspora be different from transnationalism? Would you say? What's that? How would a diaspora be different oh. from the, the term that you're you're driving at?
2: Sure. Um, so when I think about um, diaspora, I think of it as literally dispersed. Um, that you know communities are um, separated from this um, homeland that they yearn for, but don't really get to go back to. Um, So, you know, I I think about um, diaspora, you know, in the classical sense of the Jewish diaspora, you know, as that kind of epitome of what a diaspora is, obviously with the Uh, creation of the state of Israel that is no longer the case but this you know kind of yearning for this imagined homeland that is really more of a you know unattainable um but but remains this kind of central part of their narrative um whereas the the India for transnational Hindus is, is real. It's, it's still there. It's still experienced. It's still, um, you know, visited and crossed over to many, you know, many times, um, over the course of the decades. So, um, I, I like to make that distinction. I know that, um, it's not necessarily the way that many people, uh, do that, but for me, it's important to make that distinction.
1: Well, um, in terms of diaspora, I mean, uh, unless you, you know, uh, we use it in religious studies, obviously, and uh, it's tied, as you mentioned, traditionally to a people in exile, right? And so the idea of 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 habiting a land other than your own, um, in the Hindu context, in our day and ages, is, is far richer than a people in exile, right? And so. Yeah. Um, Uh, obviously, as I was reading your book, what what comes to mind is, um, I visit this, um, this uh, Tamil um, uh, South Indian temple in Toronto, north of Toronto, Richmond Hill, the Richmond Hill Hindu temple. It's been there for three or four decades. Um, And I have a fascinating relationship with the temple in that uh, the the culture, the culture is alien to me. um, Because my ancestors were North Indian, and my immediate ancestors were from Guyana, right? Right. Uh, and when I go to the Richmond Hindu temple and I see um, uh, uh, children born in Canada, uh, having, uh, participating in dance festivals or having their parents explain things to them or, or doing puja, um, I often muse that unless you look out the window, you don't really know that you're in Toronto when you're in the temple. And I think that's sort of what this concept is about. It's it's the the the, the experience uh, uh, of being a Hindu and and, and engaging ritually and culturally um, isn't diminished based on the geographical location or something along those lines. Great. Yeah. So you uh, you focus on. Uh, a specific story, specific family story. Tell us about the, the, the topic of the book or the focus of the book.
2: Um, well the the book really centers on the narrative of the Gupta family. Um, and the Guptas are you know basically from the northwestern part of Uttar Pradesh and Haryana. Um, they uh moved to the American South East in the early 1970s. So that early um, post-1965 wave, um, along with other students coming um, from India for many reasons, um, including opportunities for higher education. Um, And there are a lot of reasons why, um, the, the the law changed in 1965 I know you read <laughs> that that that's in my book but um in the United States the law was signed in um by President Johnson in 1965 that opened immigration up to different kinds of people than it had been um, opened up to before. And that really um, started this wave of immigration from South Asia um, in numbers that we hadn't seen before. And the Guptas were really part of that early Um, post-1965 wave of people who came in, um, Dr. Gupta came to study engineering um, and ended up getting his PhD at North Carolina State. Um, As he was doing that, um, he went back to India, married his wife. She came and joined him. And then they've lived in various places in the Southern United States before settling in the Atlanta area. Um, I want to say sometime in the late 80s. And um, his older brother, one of his older brothers had also come before him. They are also settled in uh, Alabama. And um, the rest of his family is still back in India. And he comes from a large family. So they are, they are, lots of people all over Delhi. Um, She also has a sister who lives in Delhi. And so I have spent time both with the Guptas in Atlanta, as well as their family members um, in Delhi. Um, At the time I was doing my research, his family was still at the old family home in Chandni Chowk. And um, her one of her older sisters had a home in South Delhi.
1: And so thank you for preempting the question about 1965 for those who may not be as familiar um, with that period. it's not dissimilar to maybe what was happening in the 1980s in Canada. so my my family actually ended up I actually immigrated to Canada in the early 80s when I was <laughs> and so um, so so along with this along with this this um, opportunity to immigrate in this movement, um, there's much more going on with this family. Uh, tell us about Sacha.
2: Oh gosh. Okay. (laughs) So I first met him. Um, well I first heard about him, uh, before I even met him. Um, the, the story about his birth was, um, a story that was told in many different contexts and, um, I wanted to start the book with it because I thought he kind of epitomized this generation of transnational Hindus. Um, he was, uh, his mother um, and father at the time that he was born were living in Nigeria. Um, the So let's see. Um, he is Mrs. Gupta, the Atlanta Mrs. Gupta's uh, niece's son. Um, she, the niece, had married um, a man whose family was working in Nigeria. So he was living there. And when she married him, she moved there. Um, but they did not want to have the baby in Nigeria um, because they they said, <laughs> um, at least in certain contexts, um, the story went that, you know, it just wasn't the, the hospital system wasn't good. They weren't comfortable with, you know, the medical system there. So they wanted to, um, go have, have him somewhere where they felt more comfortable. Um, and they decided on Atlanta. Um, you know, they, they didn't really give, you know, in many contexts, it it was just, oh, well, they, they just decided to go to Atlanta for whatever reason, because the, the Mrs. Gupta and her husband lived there and she could, come and help with the baby. And that was fine. Um, so Satya was born in, um, I'm pretty sure there's a hospital in in Atlanta on the North side of the city that's known for having uh, a huge maternity ward. So he was born there. Um, and the big story is that his father was somewhere off on the other side of the world, doing business when she went into labor, because she went into labor early, and um, her uncle was on the phone with the dad for, you know, the entire time trying to get him back to, you know, get to Atlanta. It was it, yeah. Um, but I guess the, the main point of the story is that Satya, who, whose parents lived in Nigeria at the time, uh, was born in Atlanta. And then, um, I think right after he was born in Atlanta, they stayed there for a while and then traveled to India, um, to visit his grandparents who were still there. Um, and then I, he didn't make it back to Nigeria until he was several months old. And, um, so he's. Because he was born in the u s he's a citizen of the u s and it turns out um, he's now in college and he's in college in Chicago and you know given the climate, you know who could have predicted what things were going to be like um, at this point in our history but you know given the climate um, that we're in, he's pretty fortunate to have u s citizenship because it might not have been so easy for him to get um a student visa to come you know if he had been trying to apply for one at this point so you know it's pretty fortunate that he was able to to be born here
1: so given that that rich uh history of 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 the of the places he's been tied to um tell us how he and his family have um uh Maintained or, or 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 even reimagined their Hinduism. Like what what? How have they managed to maintain practices across all of these uh, political boundaries?
2: Right. Um, so they had uh, a little. I mean, as you know, Hinduism starts at home, and daily practice is something that. You, you don't need a temple for that. Um, you can just do that at home. And, and so home practice is really the most important thing. Um, so that was always there. Um, but the Indian community in Nigeria wasn't very particularly big or vibrant. Um, but his mother did. Um, they did um manage to connect them to some people
0: there. Um, and uh they they did uh, what was it the um i i can't remember um it was some um kind of new religious like
2: um early twentieth century
1: are Mudge. was that? are you much
2: um i'm not it's, it's, it's not, it's not coming to me right now, but I can't remember.
1: That's all right.
2: Yeah. Um. So she did, you know, bring him to some group um, gatherings, but you know, whenever they were um, home, whenever they were visiting home, I, I don't know why, I, I guess I always thought of home for them as being with her parents. Um, and they would visit for months at a time because his mother didn't work. Um, so when he wasn't in school, Uh, they were, they would go and stay with her parents for months at a time. Um, that was where they would, you know, she would practice, they would, he would learn whatever, you know, was going on at home. Um, and then they ended up moving to, um, Dubai, um, I don't know. I don't know how many years ago. There's a larger, I, I'm pretty sure there's a much larger Indian community there. Um, and I I haven't kept in touch with them enough to know exactly what their religious practices are there. But, you know, I know that, you know, certainly they keep up doing, doing things at home. Um, her mother was always very um, religious in terms of Every morning, doing her puja at home and and being part of a you know a, a number of different groups that would meet um, on a regular basis to recite different um, different texts or sing um, bhajans and things like that. So you know, I know that um, while Satya's mother was probably more you know as as a mother of a younger child probably wasn't doing these things as much as her own mother was now that her kids were grown up, I'm sure um, she did what she could with young kids. And, you know, again, religious practice changes during different phases of life as well. So, you know, they would do the life cycle rituals for sure. um, But maybe she wasn't doing what her mother was doing to the extent that she was doing it because she was busy raising two young kids and taking them around to various activities.
1: Great. So we have a a good sense of what uh, a transnational Hindu is in terms of the subtitle of your book, Narrative Performances. Tell us about the narrative performances, uh, what that means or what you look at in your book.
2: Sure. So um, I've worked with performance studies a bit and um, I look at the narratives that the community family members tell um, each other um, both personal stories as well as religious stories and I read the personal stories as religious um, because there are religious interpretations and, and religious contexts that help to help us understand these narratives um, because they do have religious impl- implications. So, um, I look at the ways that these stories are told um, and the context that they're told in so that I can understand the ways that um, they're creating meaning as they're being told. Um, so, many of the stories that I focus on are stories about immigration. Um, That's a huge kind of story that comes up over and over again. Um, You know, it it could come up in, in, you know, kind of short bits, or it could be a longer narrative. But that comes up a lot um, in in different contexts and has different meanings depending on the context it's told in. Um, But I also look at stories, um, that are religious stories that are told, um, and performed like the Sundarkand, which is the main religious story that the Guptas, uh, participate in telling over and over again.
1: So Sundarkand, maybe a a quick note of reminder of, of what that is or where that's from.
2: Sure. So, um, particularly this is uh, from tulsi das's version of the ramayan um the ram Charit manas um the sundarkand is the chapter it's the shortest chapter um but it's the one that if if anyone's going to recite just one chapter from the ram Charit manas that's the chapter that people recite um they give all sorts of reasons why they do it but um basically they say it's the most beautiful, um, Sundar being beautiful, beautiful part. And um, they also say that within it, the whole story is told. Um, and I could tell you more detail about what's in the actual Sundarkan if you want. Um.
1: Uh, no, I think uh, just so the audience can can I can be reminded that it's uh, it's a book of the the Ramayana, the, the goings of Rama from, from in this case, from um, medieval times as opposed to, say, Valmiki. Now, is this, uh, I haven't looked at uh, Tulsidas's work. Is this, are there seven books there as well? I imagine so. Yes. And is it the fourth book? Fifth. So.
0: There's, there's
1: yeah. the. Book of Childhood, there's. Ayurveda. There's a for- book of the forest.
2: i'll
1: I'll look it up.
2: I'm pretty sure uh, it's the fifth. Um, here I've got uh, I have the ROM chart. I just happen to have Rom chart Mon right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: no <laughs> one knows me. why no one knows why it would be sitting on your desk.
2: <laughs> I, yeah, in in Hindi and everything, um, let me see here. so. Balkan, Ayodhakand, AranyaKand, Kishkin, KishkindaKand, and then SundarKand.
1: Great. So it it um, so in terms of the narrative, it foregrounds um, the great devotee of Rama and Sita, Hanuman. Right. And so maybe say a note about that because uh, Hanuman has um, very different standing in in. In different parts of Hindudom. and it seems that in 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 North Indian culture, and particularly in transnational Hinduism, there seems to be um, uh, a much uh, greater propensity to venerate Hanuman uh, or celebrate Hanuman in a sense than, for example, one might see in a, a South Indian temple. Uh, but nevertheless, tell us about uh, tell us about this book and why this book is so. Um, integral to the the narrative performance of these transnational Hindus.
2: Sure, so in the Sundarkand, um, it is the part where Hanuman leaps across the ocean. So right there, you've got um, crossing the, the ocean, um, just like uh, the Guptas and their family have done. Um, he leaps across the ocean from um, the southern tip of India to Lanka. As in search of Sita, um, and he is the one who finally finds her um, imprisoned in in Ravan's garden, and um, he um, he performs all sorts of heroic acts um, while he is there. Um, and he it's funny because when people talk about the the chapter, they they focus mostly on Hanuman and what he does, but it's really only part of, of, of half of what happens in the chapter and, and half of it, it talks about prep, the preparations for battle because um, he goes back to Ram and um, relays to Ram what has happened in Lanka and that he has indeed found Sita and she is there. Um, so he confirms, you know, he's the one who has found her because they've been searching for her since she's been abducted. Um, and there's a, a lot of the uh, chapter that actually talks about preparing for, you know, crossing the, the army crossing over and this bridge, and and um, you know, Robin's advisors warning him against, you know, this folly of trying to to fight against ram and you know um his brother defects and and goes over to ram's side and you know there's a lot of things going on in the chapter but people really focus on this you know kind of hanuman as the um the the one who goes um and finds sita and hanuman as this great devotee of ram and and, um, of course Philip Luckendorf's wonderful work, um, both on the Ramchart Manas and on Hanuman, um, has uh, talked a lot about how Hanuman has become this um, god that is revered by the middle classes because he is this, you know, kind of middleman. He's 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 approachable in a way that the great gods aren't. Um, that he is you know, he, he, he's the one who you can send messages, you know, through, uh, he will listen and he will help his devotees be heard. Um, so he's, he's this, um, very kind of, um, you know, approachable, uh, deity, uh, whereas, you know, Ram and as the great god Vishnu is is a little bit more remote um so he's he's really his popularity has taken off um and in fact the um the the guru um an ashram where uh the the um guru who started or who suggested to the Guptas to start this practice of reciting the Sundarkana they have this huge Hanuman on their property um in haryana and um and the, the these large hanumans have become this you know kind of common um, you know will be commonly seen throughout north india um and again, my knowledge is with the North Indian community, so you might be right about South India. I have not seen Hanuman to the extent there um but yeah.
1: So um, these performances, what are they doing? Are they are they stage? Are they are they acting out the Sundar Khanda?
2: No, no, they're they're sitting, they're sitting and reading and singing. Um, so it's you know it's you know like a chant, um, but to a certain beat and tune. Um, there often will be somebody playing dolok uh, and um, just to keep a beat. And then everybody's singing along, um, some better than others. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a it's a lay non-professional, um, group of devotees who are just expressing their, um, love and, and devotion to, uh, God and, and, um, you know it's it's a way for them to come together to practice uh together and and really create a community around this practice
1: so very much in the idiom of bhakti
2: yes and many um so after after they do the sundarkand um they will often um different people will lead bhajans um you know it's yeah it's not a it's not very formal um they do a little simple puja uh beforehand um there's a little bit of sanskrit but it's really minimal
1: so this sort of uh, narrative performance um is in no real need of a priest for example
2: no no and and this is you know pretty typical for these kind of neighborhood get togethers, even the ones that I've seen in in Delhi as well, where this is something that lay people are able to learn how to do and do for themselves without the need of a professional.
1: Great. So why is the first word in your title, imagining? Why is it imagining religious communities? Tell us about that piece.
2: Um, You know, I use, I use, I I was inspired by the imagination um, and the ways that um, Arjuna Potterai has discussed imagination um, and used uh, the image, the imagination and, you know, Benedict Anderson's imagining community um, to think about the ways that um, really And it's not just limited to the Hindu communities that I've studied, but that we're all, you know, kind of working on creating our own communities and realities, and and part of the process is these narratives that we tell. Um, And it's not, you know, and I'm I'm very clear that um, an imagined Um, religious community is not one that doesn't exist or that, I mean, it really, it is real um, and it is uh, important and it does function um, in an important way for people, but it's something that people help to create, I think is what I want to emphasize, that it's something that isn't created for them and doesn't exist before them, it's created and recreated by doing, by practice, by telling stories um, in the retelling over and over again, by coming together and by practicing uh, rituals together, um, by telling stories, by sitting down afterwards and and having tea and, and just discussing things, you know, whatever's going on in the community. That these you know these communities didn't exist when they moved here in the early '70s. They they created them themselves. And so, what I wanted what I wanted to emphasize was that we talk about um, globalization as this kind of big force that that's um, coming from above. That um, that that. Kind of pushes people in certain directions, and I wanted to talk about the force from below that people the power that people have themselves to help to um, create their own worlds um, so that it's not just um, coming from outside but that people have the the power to create their communities as well um, so Yes, there were global forces at work that um, brought large groups of North Indians or large groups of Hindus and Indians to the United States at certain times. And you know, yes, many of them had were from middle class families, and you know, they, they they fit certain demographic patterns. That was part of you know, global forces kind of created that. But at the same time, the people who were part of that movement have their own power and agency in creating the communities that they ended up creating and are still working on. You know, they're, they're, they're never done. It's 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 a process that's never finished. And I and I wanted to really um emphasize this as a process. Um and imagining that, you know, kind of gerund, it's it's not it's not imagined. It's it's imagining
0: and it's still being imagined. Um, So that's really why I made that choice
1: So these transnational Hindus in their imagining um uh, and reimagining continual uh, it, it, their continual process of community creation um, it, when you use the the word imagining it's it's obviously clear from the context that you're not talking about imaginary religion versus real religion or some such some such um, distinction, but who's doing the imagining and what are they imagining or what is this process i th- I think it's fascinating um and rich so I'm going to probe you a little bit like who's is it is it is it like envisioning is it the founders of these communities Is there some sort of imagined ideal that they're aspiring after is this like, tell us a little bit more about what's being imagined or who's the imagining.
2: That's a good question. I mean, and I would probably say that, you know, at least for the purpose of this book, I'm probably part of that <laughs> process as well. Um, and I try to, you know, be as transparent as possible in terms of where I'm coming from, in terms of my perspective and, and how I'm interpreting what they're doing as well. Um, but, but, you know, if I'm, if I'm just talking about what they're
0: doing in in the process, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a group effort. Um, and it's,
2: it's negotiating, uh, and it's, it's messy. Um, you know, there, there are, People who have different ideas about
0: what things should look like. And um and there, you know, I, I talk about
2: different groups in the book. And um, you know, the the Sundracon group is only one group in this Atlanta community that is functioning, and, and there are other ones. Um one has actually stopped meeting because it was really intended to teach the second generation um, about Hinduism, and now the second generation of that first group is is grown, so there's no need for them anymore. But that was run um, mostly by men in the community, and um, Sundarkand is you know the, the Mrs Gupta is really kind of the lay leader of this group. And, and so it's, it's a different, it's, you know, it's different than this other group that, that was run by men. And then there's also this, you know, um, uh, I, I speak about it in the book as well. This, this Mata Chalki where, um, the, the woman who, who kind of really is the glue for that group is, is much more charismatic and, um, There there are different people acting in different ways um, and the communities coalesce in different ways based on the different kinds of authority that they're perceiving and and experiencing. Um, And it's constantly negotiated. Uh, You know, I would say gender plays a huge role um, in terms of... You know, in in many ways, women were um, kind of the ones to, to at least in the first generation, really take on what Hinduism is and, and transmit it to that second generation. But there were always, you know, some men who wanted to to take that on as well. And and there are disagreements sometimes about, well, what does it mean, you know, that Sita was not never accepted um fully after she was you know imprisoned by Ravan. Um, and they do discuss those things. So it's it's you know it's it's not it's not um a done deal. It's you know it's constantly it's constantly something that's negotiated and certain people have more power than others to to um, influence I would say the way the community goes, but you know you, there's always resistance um, and there's there are always people who are questioning things
1: So this idea of of narrative performances uh, obviously you talked about the the um the Sundarkand. Um, you also mentioned in passing earlier that you see the the life narratives, the personal stories, um, as also very religious, and 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 the personal stories really they're they're a large part in weaving together this family and even your study on this family. So tell us what you mean when you say that their personal narratives are also religious.
2: I, I read them in terms of um, dharma and the ways that um the kind of expectations that dharma places on sons and husbands and wives and daughters and mothers and um fathers uh shape those narratives so for example um you know we have dr gupta's story about how he um made the decision or in his case, didn't make a decision to come to the United States, um, just how it kind of happened to him. And um, if you, you know, I'm assuming if you read the book that, you know, he really kind of frames it as this thing that happened to him instead of a decision that he made, that he was definitely going to come and stay. And, um, which is really telling in terms of, you know, how he, how he frames that story, Um, you know, and if you look at the, you know, he, his role uh, at the time that he came was, you know, he was a student and so yes, his role was to learn and, you know, be, be obedient and and do what he was supposed to do. And, you know, he, he was that, you know, good, Indian son who was learning engineering and, and doing those things. Um, but at the same time, it meant leaving his family behind in Delhi. And um, so it's, it's always framed in terms of, you know, kind of balancing those competing demands, understanding that, you know, that Dharma is, you know, that context in which the story is told and, and needs to be understood within that context so the decision to you know then once he got his degree settle and have you know and and have a career in the united states instead of going back to delhi where he had been offered a job was again like and again he also talks about it as if it wasn't his decision it was just something that happened to him um you know it it's it's important to know that Yeah, he, he, he makes it seem as if he was just kind of pushed around by these forces instead of actively choosing to, you know, break away from his big extended family and settle in the United States to, you know, create his own family and take care of them and, and, you know, make really, you know, make a life that was full of all these opportunities for his own kids. Um, one of the reasons why I think he continues to tell the story the way he does is
0: because, you know, in the back, he's, he's leaving his family behind.
1: Oh, it's fascinating. Um, So in your process of, of researching and, and, and writing this book, was there anything that really surprised you in terms of your findings of the process? Like what, I mean, we all have different sort of approaches to our research. Uh, Some of us have a sense of the answer and just need to go and and find it in the data. Uh, Some of us sort of are very open-ended, but I think uh, all of us learn something uh, perhaps even surprising through the process. So what was it about this book's findings that that really uh, surprised you?
0: And I, I think um, just being open to hearing them allowed me to understand how
2: much they were responsible for shaping their own lives and experiences, um, or at least framing the meaning of their own lives and experiences.
0: Um, You know, if that makes sense.
1: This is similar then to what we just talked about in terms of the personal narratives being uh, religiously framed in terms of they, they frame their, their experiences um, with respect either to Dharma or pressures beyond um, their personal agency. So, for example, with Dr. Gupta, it's something along the lines of destiny or the pressures of karma, and this religious frame is seems to be quite crucial um, to the imagining of the religious community that they're a part of.
0: Um,
2: yeah, I. I mean, I think I I'm the one who's putting that on there and reading it within that context as the scholar like i I find
0: that that's my um that i'm responsible for you know
2: understanding that that's an important context for 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 understanding the narratives that way um i think what i'm trying to say is that you know they really you know I'm, i'm thinking about um uh, this this other woman, one of the nurses um, that I that I touch on um, in in the book, and how she really I mean she really took control of her own life, and you know at a time when you know there weren't a lot of women who were able to do that, and you know she didn't like the way she was being treated in India, even though she had you know had a good education. Um, and, and so coming to the United States was a way for her to really take charge. And, and she, she, you know, I, I guess it's, it's hard to see, it's hard to see, um, when you look on that from the outside, it's often hard to see that, um, because what you see is you see, uh, you know, kind of perhaps what might look like a typical Indian woman who's, you know, taking care of her family and and doing the things that she's supposed to do, but you don't realize how much how much she's really kind of
0: done to um, take control of her own destiny
1: that's interesting it's very interesting so um was there anything in the book that you hoped we would touch on that we didn't
2: um you know, I, I guess the one thing that I wanted to talk about um was just ethnography in general
1: uh, that's so funny uh, <laughs> because I I almost always start off with methodology so you're studying text, so you're studying people so um <laughs> And the one time I don't <laughs> is the one time <laughs> well, is keen is keen enough to circle back. Yeah, please tell tell us about your data. Like tell us, well,
2: no, I just wanted to talk about doing ethnography a little bit and, and my approach to it because um
0: you know it's at least the way that um South Asian religion has been
2: taught, it's so um, it, it's not so. It's often very focused on text and classical texts, and so you know when you're talking about Ramayan and 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 referencing Valmiki, Valmiki is a completely like it's not even in my world, <laughs> um, which is fine. I mean, it it, it you know it's um, when I when when I hear Ramayan and when the people that I've worked with say Ramayan, they mean the ramcharitmanas Manas. Like the, there's no doubt that that is what they are talking about. And um, and I had the you know wonderful fortune to work with um, Joyce Flukiger, who's an amazing um, folklorist and ethnographer. Um, she was my advisor um, at Emory, and um, I also had um, a wonderful opportunity to take a class when I was doing my master's that was actually called the Art of Ethnography, which. Um, I guess, you know, I've always taken that to heart that it's not, you know, it's not a science. It's not, it is an art. And, um, I guess, so my approach when I'm working and I've, I've always struggled with what to call the people that I've done my work with. (laughs) Um, I was in this art of ethnography course. Um, the professor always wanted us to call them consultants, which I like because They are, they are the experts of their own lives. And it's just when I've used that term outside of, (laughs) you know, with anybody else, they don't understand who I'm talking about. But um, I guess I just wanted to, you know, talk about the fact that, you know, the people that I've worked with, the people that I've studied, the people that, you know, I've done this ethnography with are the experts in their own lives. And I'm only there to kind of help put it together. And I hope that I've done that justice.
1: So, um, imagine you're you're alluding to not wanting to call them, for example, subjects. Yes. Research subjects. Correct. Uh, because it can uh, very well um, it can be. It's, it certainly suggests a very different power dynamic when someone is your research subject, as opposed to when someone's your consultant. What do you think of the word informant? I know that has a bit of a different connotation. Um, yeah. Mm, that's a good Consul- question. Consultants—an interesting concept, but the idea that um, uh, there's two tensions here that I perceive. There is the tension between, you know, what's happening on the ground in Hinduism versus what do we see in these ancient Sanskrit texts. You know, um, the little tradition, the great tradition, or, or popular Hinduism versus um, something more similar to what I do. And then there's. Um, um, the second one has just slipped my mind. I'm under the weather today. Um, but there, there's also the tension of, oh yes, especially with, I think, with the world religion in general, but particularly in the case of South Asia or Indian religions, we have the tension between um, the, the the mindset, the mentality, the categories, the theory with which we decide to um, to approach the data. And uh, far, far too often, folks uh, end up in the pitfall of round, uh, round holes and square pegs type right. thing. And really it's um, some of the concepts, for example, that I come up with uh, in looking at the texts I look at come from having looked at the texts for a long time or using words that are in the texts uh, because it's, it's um, this idea that the theory is ours, with which we look at the data, it really doesn't work with South Asia. And I think the more successful among us sort of have to, um, the data ends up enriching the theory before we can even further process that. I don't know if you'd agree with that kind of, that we take our lead from the stories themselves that you're hearing, for example, Mm -hmm. then coming to the situation with uh, the science of ethnography under your belt.
2: Oh, that's yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose if I had gone there and, you know, they were studying Sanskrit texts, I would have been at a loss. I don't know. <laughs> um yeah, that would have been a tough one for me. Um I suppose I would have, you know, studied Sanskrit more, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um
1: Yeah, I know the, the, the idea that the uh it resonated with you uh, that the course is called the art of ethnography because it's not a rigid science. It has to be. I mean, I've joked probably about you know half a dozen times on this podcast that I love people. My main livelihood uh, and skill sets relate relate to people and processing people and helping people grow. For example, mm-hmm. I have no idea, you know, when I was growing up socializing was, was, wasn't school. <laughs> I didn't even begin to think I can get credit for actually engaging people in conversation and interviewing them because that was just a way of being. Mm-hmm. I, often joke, I often joke that why on earth am I a textualist? Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, it seems to me, and I don't have any formal uh, training or experience, but it seems to me that the conversations you have with your consultants, uh, uh, it's, it's very much a, a collaboration, isn't it? Yes. Yes. For and sure. That's, and that's not quite the that's not quite the idea we come away with when you when you're researching a group of people, right? That mm-hmm. it's a collaboration and that the, the conversation is fundamentally unpredictable and uh, sometimes we're not even asking the right questions. Sometimes we change the questions we're gonna ask based on uh, the responses we get part okay. through that Well, that's
2: the, I mean, that's the beauty of being able to work with a community for a period of several years because things change and you hear one thing and that makes you kind of take a different direction or, you know, think about different things or think about things in a different way.
0: It's, you know, it's, it's fluid. Um, And, giving it time. I mean, I've
2: worked with this community over many, many years and giving it that time. At the, I've been fortunate enough to have that much time with them um, really allowed me to, to let things go where they were going to go instead of kind of directing them myself. Um, you know, certainly the conclusion that I Came to at the end, you know. If I had written this book ten years ago, it would have been different. And uh, you know, things have things have played out in a way that I probably wouldn't have predicted. Um, so you know, I wouldn't. I I don't know that I would have predicted that this this other group um, that had been, you know, kind of very central um, to the Atlanta community would have died out yeah i just wouldn't have expected that um but now i'm you know kind of seeing a little bit more clearly how the life cycle of these groups may work and um you know that these these kind of paka south south indian temples really do have something there because you know even the north indian um Second or third generation are are doing their rituals there. Um, I wouldn't have predicted that.
1: So that's that's uh, <laughs> just as I thought we were wrapping up. But but we'll, we'll pursue this line of thought because it's too fascinating. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 this is not a, no, no, this is a good thing. This is, um, we're exemplifying the very same thing that I'm talking about in that this is a conversation and I can't have a, a scripted number of questions because who knows where, where, where my consultant will take me. Right, well. <laughs> and so this idea about the life cycle of such groups, I mean, this is a fascinating insight. The idea that, that on the one hand, Hinduism is extraordinarily portable and starts off at home, you know, on your parents' knee type thing, or at your home, um, at your home uh, uh, shrine, you know, observing rituals and whatnot. And this, 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 this other idea that uh, that these these permanent structures of worship in the public sphere are needed to somehow uh, maintain maintain the life cycle, right? So 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 tell us about what it is this sort of tantalizing in, insight that you're you're alluding to about what you've learned or what you're learning about this this need for temples perhaps
2: So um the Gupta's daughter um has two young daughters herself now and she's a busy doctor um she's just you know kind of getting by and and working hard like, you know, most of us are. And um, so, you know, kind of as I was getting ready to finish the book, I, you know, we we talked a little bit about where things were and how she, you know, how things were going and, and really what she was doing with her children because I knew how she had learned about Hinduism through her parents and, and through her parents' community. And, um, it, it, that surprised me because, you know, they're, they're not doing these, these groups like her parents did. Um, but they're, they're going to, um, there's a, uh, the Atlanta Hindu temple or Hindu temple of Atlanta, um, in Riverdale, uh, south of Atlanta is a big, um, uh, you know, one of those like temples based on the, uh, Tirupati, um, and uh you know, it's been there for a couple of decades, and very um you know it, they they built it the right way, and you know but um so when when they had their you know daughter's you know mundan or what you know anything, um, or when they bought a new house or you know any very kind of big event um, that they wanted to um have a puja for. They went there, um, they didn't go to the more north Indian style temples that you know aren't really you know uh, built according to the right you know according to the the way that they're, they're supposed to be built uh, they're they're going to these South Indian temples because they are proper temples and they don't understand how the priests are doing the ritual. Cause it's not, you know, the way that they do them in North India, but because they have proper priests and, you know, they just have it done there. And, um, that surprised me. It really this, surprised me.
1: We've come full circle cause this is precisely what you'll see at the Richmond Hill Hindu temple. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, there are, uh, it's a, I believe it was built in the early eighties. Richmond Hill, which is a city just north of Toronto, so sort of at the time in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it's as you say, uh, it's pukka, you know, uh, which isn't a South Indian word, but you, you get the idea, the listeners get the idea that sort of means it's, it's fully cooked, yes. it's the real deal. It's uh, uh, the way I explain the, 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 the energy of that word is it's not half baked, yes, <laughs> right, exactly. And so the temple is uh, has an enormous following it's a huge temple um uh traditionally trained priests come from india um and they maintain the temple day in and day out 365 days a year and that's been the case for for decades and so there are hindus who aren't part of that community and that they may not be tamil speaking or they may not um they may be much closer to myself, although I, I'm probably, um, uh, f- much further outside of the sphere, uh, <laughs> much further to the periphery of, of, even those Hindus, but, uh, folks who, who don't dress that way, don't speak that way, don't eat those foods, don't understand half of the, the festivals that are very uniquely mm-hmm. South Indian. And yet, um, they will go and they will, um, they will sponsor a fire ritual or they will go and have their new car blessed. Right. And they'll go there, not because of a community tie, not because they can really uh sort of they're they're outsiders in the in 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 the in the immediate socio-cultural dimension, but there is this notion that uh uh, the, the 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 spiritual religious dimension is pristine enough to warrant going there to procure the blessing they're looking for um so so it is fascinating isn't it
2: well yeah and you know as you're talking i'm thinking you know it's not about community at all for them it, it's not
1: exactly exactly it, and it, this- it's
2: more just a transactional like we're just going to get this blessed, and, you know, we're going to do it properly and we've done what we're, we're supposed to do.
1: Exactly. And this exchange is uncanny because I had a, 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 a colleague and friend come out um, from out West where I did my doctorate. I did my, my BA and master's in Toronto. And then I went to Calgary to, to do the PhD. And so someone I've known out there since maybe, I don't know, 2012 or so. Uh, she happened to be in Toronto this last weekend, this weekend. Um, and she happened, it dawned on her that she wanted to get a Ganesh Murti. She's a Western woman from Alberta. Um, and so she really wanted a Ganesh Murti, but she didn't just want art. She wanted it blessed, right? She wanted to get it blessed, you know? So I said, so, so I I thought to myself, I'm like, would you be interested in going into the Richmond Hill Hindu temple? It's It's a beautiful space that you probably want to see anyhow. Um, and she's like, yeah, so this is exactly what transpired this past weekend, a transaction yep. to obtain a blessing or a, 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 to, to activate the know, the Pranapatishta, right? Yeah. To have the deity's energy reside within you know, her embodiment at home. And it's fascinating. And, and she emailed, reflecting on the experience, and <laughs> in the email, I said, look, the temple functions on a number of levels. The first one that I listed was the sociocultural dimension. I says I, I am, I am fairly alien to that dimension because I was born in Guyana. And my ancestors were from North India, and I couldn't. I don't even know what what the exact articles of clothing are called or the styles. There's so much there that I just don't know, and I, I'm a tourist there in that dimension. Right. And yet, having the training in the Sanskrit and some ritual, I'm very much at home in the ritual dimension.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think you know, you know I think that that ritual dimension is what folks are after because it, it, because the idea is that in the ritual comes the blessing through the ritual comes the blessing right. and 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 there's all kinds of fascinating questions because the question of well you know it's all good and well to not need a, a Hindu priest when you're um, when you are chanting the Hanuman and that's Perfectly valid and probably transformative, mm-hmm. but but we need a Hindu priest if we're going to bless our car. Yes,
0: <laughs> right? yeah.
1: but I think we've we've sort of stumbled upon a, 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 a new a, a subsequent project <laughs> for one of us or probably. someone else. <laughs> uh, which brings me to my final question. Um, you know, what are you working on these days? And if you want to tell us a little bit of your context, and you know, you do other work, but the the the, the question is like, what what. What if anything are you working on in terms of further research
2: <laughs> if I had time <laughs> um, yeah, so
1: t- tell us, tell us a bit about that I think the audience might be fascinated because you and I are in are in unconventional situations as scholars yet uh, I think unconventional is now conventional <laughs> for I, uh, our field
2: yeah given given the way academia has been going um, so when I I mean and this is based on my Ph.D. dissertation in the book, so it's been a long time coming. I'm grateful that I was given the time and was able to finally get it done. Um, I did start a, a second research project after um, I did the initial research for this book, um, which was funded by a senior um, fellowship, uh, short-term fellowship by AIS. Um, So I have to they, you know, give them a shout out and thank them for that. Um, I was
1: uh, translation, AIS. I know exactly American what you mean. The Indian American Studies. Institute of Indian Studies. They have all kinds of research programs. For example, they have an amazing uh, language training program in various cities. I did my Sanskrit training. In 2012 at Pune through AWS, so yes, shout out to Yeah, please Please proceed. Please
0: proceed.
2: Uh, thank you. Um, so I did. Uh, this was back in 2009, so it's now 11 years ago. Um, but I did uh, start a project where I was looking at um, women's budget groups uh, in Delhi. I was looking at the ways that uh, women, uh, transmit, um, bhajans, uh, and I, I was interested in, let's say, I guess my assumption was that, uh, bhajans would have normally been transmitted from one generation of women to the next generation of women in joint households, um, joint family households, um and that you know in kind of these modern contemporary urban settings that things might have changed a bit and i was i wanted to look at modern urban um satsangs um in in different kind of contexts um mostly well mostly middle middle to upper middle class contexts um and uh so i i did some work with uh some of these groups and um i've done a little bit of uh i've done a couple of presentations on it um, but i haven't written anything yet um but that's you know kind of one of the lines of thought um I, while i was doing that research i also came across um this religious text called the amritvani um which you know i I found out about on, as I was traveling to Delhi um, to start this research, I'd never heard of it before. And the woman who was sitting next to me had been listening to it and um, we ended up exchanging information. She uh, ended up actually being a consultant (laughs) Um, and living very close to where I was living. So um, she's, she's, she's been a great um, resource for me, but and then I, I ended up finding Amritvani everywhere since then. So I'm kind of fascinated by this and, and want to know more about where this came from and, and how this phenomenon has spread. Um, Cause it's one of these, um, it's a very simple, very, very simple text um, that people you know, kind of recite in groups. Um, you don't need a, a priest or a specialist for it, um, but it just seems to be really, really popular.
1: So then you'll have to come back when your Amritvani book is out.
2: Yeah. <laughs> if I ever have time to write it, sure.
1: <laughs> uh, sure. Um, now, uh, Jennifer is so busy with um, her job that we have to wait a good month or so until it was a holiday <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to get on a call, which is fine, which is fine. You know, there's no shortage of things to do, but um, you never know. You never know um, what opportunities may open up in terms of being able to pursue that research. But in either case, you're obviously very welcome back uh, when next you have some research you'd like to share with the world.
2: Thanks for having me. <laughs>
1: um, you're very welcome. Um, it was uh, great chatting about your book. And so for everyone listening, we've been talking to Jennifer B. Saunders. Uh, she's an independent scholar based in San, uh, Stanford, Connecticut. We've been talking about her book, Imagining Religious Communities, Transnational Hindus and their narrative performances. Um I'm your host, Dr. Raj Falkaran. Um Until next time, keep reading. Bye-bye.